0: All right. Well, good evening, everyone. My name's Ken. For those of you who I haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at Wollongong Baptist Church, and it's great uh, to have you all here with us tonight. Now, before we look at 1 Samuel chapter 5, a couple of quick announcements. The first, repeating that from last week, If you've been thinking about baptism, if you wonder why it's a Baptist church and why that's important to us, then we're gonna be commencing a a new course on baptism in the next week or so. Um, And if you're interested in doing that, whether you wanna go on and do baptism or just find out about it, then come and speak to either myself or Mark after the service tonight. Um, Secondly, just following on Chris's announcement regarding the meeting this Tuesday evening. In addition to the budget, one item that is going to be discussed is to do with three motions that we'll be bringing to the meeting for your endorsement. If they're agreed to, we'll actually become a signatory to these motions when they're then presented to the combined New South Wales and ACT Baptist Association meeting, which will be held in September. So that's when all of the Baptist churches around the state uh, and ACT get together. In order to understand why uh, or what is being proposed and why, you've got some homework to do. There's a three-page document um, which summarises the issue, so there's a lot more to it than even that, uh, and gives you the exact wording of the motions that we're proposing. So we've printed out some copies. Again, grab one of those off myself or Mark after the service. And if that doesn't make any sense at all, come and talk to us about that as well. Now, tonight we come to the third of our messages in our series in the book of 1 Samuel. And in the first three chapters, we've seen the outcome of life in the time of Judges and afterwards, when people did as they pleased. God's word to his people has become less and less frequent, as God's people have drifted further and further away from him and his ways. And yet God is now raising up a godly leader to replace wicked priests the boy Samuel, who was given by his mum Hannah into the service of God uh, at the tabernacle at Shiloh. Well, tonight we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 5 that was just read for us, but we'll also dip into chapters 4 through to 7. It's a story, these four chapters, that revolve around the Ark of the Covenant, which might sound to us uh, as completely unrelated to our lives. (laughs) But hopefully you'll see, we'll see together, that there are some very important lessons in it for all of us. So will you join with me in asking God for his enabling to understand this and respond rightly? Will you join with me in praying? Sovereign Lord, we come before you uh, as people uh, who need you. We thank you for the opportunity to meet together, to hear your word in a language that we understand. Uh, to be able to spend some time thinking together about what it means. And like we've heard about Samuel, we want to be people that say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Lord, we know that we're not capable of doing this by ourselves. We're not able to come to the right conclusions. Unless your Holy Spirit works in us, please do that now so that we would not only understand what it means, but that you'd also enable us to respond to it rightly as we should. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. It was great to watch the video of the Reeves, and there's, a, there's an honesty there, uh, being on the other side of the camera for 12 years, uh, that I resonate with a great deal. Uh, Chrissy and I lived in Thailand, and when we first moved there, we lived in a townhouse in the middle of a small rural town called Thak. And it took me many, many, many months to be able to say dark correctly, because if you say it the wrong way, you end up at the other end of the country. Uh, And so I empathise with these guys. After 15 months of learning language, you've got a lot still to go. Now, when we moved to dark, we'd been married for a little bit over five years at the time. and, And one day, Christy came out of the bathroom saying, I've lost the diamond from my engagement ring. This tiny little rock was enormously valuable to both of us. I'd had Christie's engagement ring, custom-made, and had spent what I thought was quite a significant amount of money on it. But its value couldn't be measured in dollars. It had a sentimental value already, a, a symbolic value that far exceeded any financial value. The ring reminded us of precious promises that we'd made to each other. It was a symbol of an exclusive relationship. I think that I experienced in that moment something of the emotion of the woman in Jesus' parable who then desperately set out searching, forgetting all else, to find her lost coin. I felt ready to to rip open the drain with my bare hands to get that little rock back out of where we presumed that it had fallen. And so it was with much gratitude that I didn't have to take such desperate action. After getting down on all fours on the bathroom floor, we found the diamond lying there, so small that it was very hard to see. I delicately lifted the diamond from the tiles and we placed it somewhere safe. A few days later we were able to get one of the local jewelers to put it back in the ring where it belonged, this time a little bit more securely than the first time. Ah, <sighs> relief. We've all lost something of value, haven't we? Your keys, your phone or your wallet, a child in the shopping centre perhaps. It's not a confession. Uh, when, when this thing or person is gone, we're suddenly confronted by just how much they mean to us. And more often than not, we kick ourselves for the lack of attention that we paid to something that is so important, so, so valuable. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Israelites too have lost something of value, a special golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, its financial value would have been almost beyond measure, but its value went far deeper than the gold that it was made of or even its unique artistic beauty. Because far more importantly, the Ark symbolised God's presence with his people. The Ark, chapter 4, verse 4, reveals was in some sense a a portable throne for the king of Israel. Have a look at verse 4. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. See, while God himself couldn't be seen, the Ark was a visible symbol of his promise to be with Israel as their God and their king a symbol of his leadership and provision and holiness that remained continually in the physical and symbolic centre of where God's people lived. So how on earth did Israel lose something that was so valuable? Well, we finished last week with Samuel pronouncing God's judgement on Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and the fulfilment of of Samuel's prophecy comes in the very next chapter through Israel fighting with the Philistines. Israel lose the battle and in response, they bring the ark from Shiloh, where it was, up to the battle, treated much like a lucky charm. The army assumes that the ark, as it had brought victory in the past, well, if it was here in the battle, it'd bring victory again now. On its arrival, the Israelite army shouts so loud that the ground shakes. Now, I've never been in a crowd that shouts that loud. Yet despite their restored confidence, Israel lose yet again. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's two sons, are killed in the battle, meaning that the ark's loss is actually its capture by the enemy and is in part a judgment against Israel's wicked religious leadership. Yet worse still, it appears that Israel's disobedience has led to an almost unthinkable judgement against his people. The loss of the ark was not merely a, a diamond down the drain. This was a national catastrophe. God was gone, lost in enemy territory. But what possible relevance can God getting lost in enemy territory have for us today in Wollongong in 2019? Well, I'm going to suggest that it teaches us at least four things. Firstly, that the unseen God is in control everywhere and at all times. Secondly, that God cannot be manipulated. Thirdly, that God is a solo saviour. And finally, that God is a very trustworthy king. So let's have a look at these chapters together. Israel's reaction to the loss of the ark is described at the end of chapter 4. Eli falls backwards off his chair and dies. It's not in there for teachers to be able to tell their students to keep the four legs on the... Phineas' wife dies in childbirth, naming her son Ichabod, which means the glory of God has gone. And it's a great summary of the Israelite reaction to the loss of the ark. Unless, of course, that is your name happens to be Ichabod and you've got to keep that name for the rest of your life. But when we look closer at the verses that were actually read for us, this is one of those rare occasions where the Old Testament doesn't remain focused on Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, the author leaves the devastated Israelites. He leaves the promised land to follow the ark into Philistine territory, like following the opposition team back home to, to watch their victory celebrations. Like school kids in the playground saying, my dad's bigger than your dad. The Philistines' interpretation of the outcome of the battle is that their God is greater Than Israel's God. In language designed to remind us of the Exodus, the Philistines believed that while Israel's God, the Lord, or in Hebrew Yahweh, had been strong enough to deliver Israel from Egypt, well Yahweh clearly couldn't deliver Israel from Dagon. Therefore the conclusion that the Philistines come to is that Dagon must be the greatest of all the gods. The Philistines take the Ark home as plunder to Ashdod, one of the five big Philistine cities of the time. And initially they place the Ark in Dagon's temple. It's a safe place to keep an incredibly valuable object, but more importantly, again, is what it symbolised, like an organisational chart up on the wall for all to see who is boss. The Philistines set things up to show that Dagon is the greatest. However, as soon as they've set things up this way, immediately things start to go wrong. Verse 3, next morning, the Philistines wake up to find that Dagon has fallen over and is bowed down on his face in front of the ark. Poor Dagon. Maybe he was tired after that big fight with Yahweh. What else could have knocked over Such such a great God? Well, the Philistines put Dagon back in what they think is his rightful place. But next morning, verse 4, it's happened again, only this time it's even worse. Dagon is again on his face before the ark, but this time his head and his powerful arms have been broken off. This supposedly awesome god Dagon, fresh off the back of a victory over Yahweh, has suddenly developed a a strange inability to even stand up. And with cutting humour, the author notes that in contrast to the handless god Dagon, verse 6, Yahweh's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. Now, the author could have just as easily written that God poured out his anger or that he sent his judgement but the author wants to make sure that the contrast between these two gods is unmissable. It's clearly a figure of speech. There's no physical divine arm going around visibly thumping Philistines on the head. And yet the result of Yahweh's heavy hand was felt physically by the Philistines who were afflicted with tumours, a sudden outbreak of illness, a, a plague spreads throughout Ashdod. And the people of Ashdod are not silly. They recognise that their medical disaster is a result of the presence of the Ark of God. And so they cry out for their leaders to remove it. Get it away from us! What started out as a celebration of victory over Israel has become a decisive defeat. What started out as celebrating their win has turned into terror of the Israelite God. And in response, the Philistine leaders moved the ark to another town called Gath, which will become very important in the story. Now, it's likely that they did this because they concluded that Yahweh had some kind of secret advantage down there in Ashdod. Like tennis player Rafael Nadal is brilliant on clay, Roger Federer on grass. Well, perhaps Yahweh had some special ability in Ashdod that he didn't have back in Ebenezer where the original battle had taken place. And so the Philistine leaders send the ark to Gath in the hope that Dagon would have the home ground advantage there. But verse 9 tells us that the Lord's hand was against that city too. The people of Gath were thrown into panic and afflicted with an outbreak of tumours, just like what had happened at Ashton. Now, if the medical experts of our time investigated, we'd no doubt come up with the biological explanation for the spread of the tumours, the psychological explanation of the panic that resulted. But the author is far more concerned to identify who is behind what's taking place. Look again at verse 9. He, that is Yahweh, afflicted the people. He, Yahweh, the one who had apparently been defeated in battle, has been carried into enemy territory like the original Trojan horse and is now going around single-handedly wiping out Israel's enemy. Which didn't make any sense to the Philistines because haven't they won the battle? There were no Israelite warriors representing Yahweh, no priests, not even an image to show what Yahweh looked like, just this gold-covered box. How could an unseen God be systematically wiping them out? And yet never before have they experienced such a devastating defeat. And so as the people of... I think we're back on. Yep, you can hear me? Great. I know what I'm doing clearly, don't I? All of this is under control, complete control, just not mine. (laughs) Uh, And so so this whole concept that, that that the Philistines are being destroyed, it just doesn't make any sense. Yahweh can't even be seen. There's no Israelite warriors representing Yahweh. There's no priests. There's not even an image like Dagon had an image. There's just this gold box. And so the Philistines ask the question, well, how can this God be defeating us? And so they cry out, get the ark away from us. We can't stand to have the God of the Israelites among us. And so even though moving it somewhere else clearly hadn't worked the first time, in verse 10, the Philistine leaders, typical of many leaders, try the same thing again. They begin to ship the ark of God off, this time To another city called Ekron. But the people of this third big Philistine city have obviously been watching, and they're wise to what is happening. Have a look at verses 10 and 11. As the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They've brought the Ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. Now, even without being there, just reading this, you can almost feel the fear, can't you? This is not fear that results from Ekron being surrounded by an enormous army. This is not terror resulting from threatening messages from Israel's military leaders. No, a gold box is being carried around Philistine territory and everywhere it goes, Philistines are dropping dead. The people of Ekron are rightly terrified because the Philistines have actually made a terrible mistake. Analyzing the battle, they'd been quick to conclude that Dagon was the greatest. But now, they're being forced to realise that Yahweh's defeat in battle was not because of any lack of power on his behalf. Yahweh had allowed the ark to be captured to teach them a lesson. So Yahweh doesn't get the upper hand because he's got some secret advantage when he's in Ashdod or in Gath. No, the unseen God is in control everywhere and at all times often called God's sovereignty. It means that Yahweh's control of things is unlimited and uncontested. He's the boss everywhere. But why would Yahweh choose to prove his sovereignty by letting the ark be captured? You'd think that the strongest would always win to prove his superiority. And yet both sides both Israel and the Philistines, needed to learn what God's sovereignty looks like in practice. God has such an unrestricted grasp on the outcome of all things that even apparent defeat is turned into victory by him, which anticipates and should make us reflect on another seeming defeat. Jesus is crucified and laid in a tomb, dead, according to most people's way of thinking, he's defeated. And yet his death is not defeat. Rightly seen in the bigger context, it is the ultimate victory over death. Evidently God enjoys turning bad situations around and securing victory at that very moment when it seems most impossible to win. And yet despite the clear and repeated lesson, how quick are we to jump to similar misguided conclusions that the Philistines and the Israelites came to when the medical test is not what we had hoped for or when our evangelistic efforts are knocked back, when, the, when we lose our job or our relationship breaks down? Our natural reaction is often to doubt God Or, on the other hand, to to remind God that he is all-powerful and so this is a fight that he's supposed to be winning. And yet too often our assumption of what victory looks like is far too narrowly all about us. Now, sure, this truth can be distorted, uh, abused to define sovereignty as unthinking acceptance, that whatever happens is God's will. But do we truly believe that God is in control in every single situation, the good and the bad, when your microphone works and when it doesn't. He is sovereign. Are we praying like that is true? Are we responding to both the good and the bad in our life with the recognition that he is in control of it? Well, another aspect of God's sovereignty coming from this passage is our second point, that God cannot be manipulated. While the ark's capture teaches the Philistines a lesson, I think that probably the number one reason that God allows for the ark to be captured is because Israel had misunderstood God. Israel were foolishly behaving as if the ark was their superweapon. All you had to do was carry it into battle and victory was guaranteed. Perhaps they'd even come to this conclusion by doing the very thing that they should have been doing, reflecting on God's saving of them in the past. When Joshua had conquered Jericho, the army had carried up the ark and then blown trumpets and shouted. If they repeated the outward actions, wouldn't Yahweh be forced to bring about the same kind of miraculous victory again? But that's not trust in Yahweh, not trust in a sovereign God. Israel has descended into a misguided attempt to try and manipulate God. They believe in Yahweh. They acknowledge his power, but they think that they can force Yahweh to do what they want him to do. God's people needed to learn that the sovereign God cannot be manipulated. And yet again, Even with this lesson clear before our eyes, don't we sometimes slip into a manipulative or superstitious approach to God? God did miracles in the past. So surely he'll repeat them if we pray a certain way, if we finish our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. If we anoint the sick person with oil, that's got to work. We can feel pressured to forward on an email or like a post on Facebook, because clearly the number of people giving a thumbs up determines whether or not God will hear our prayers. That is sarcastic. We can ask for signs, we can wear a cross, we can even have a fish sticker on our car in order to ensure our safety. And yet if we truly understand God's sovereignty, we should realise that his power displayed in the past is not designed to teach us the recipe of how we can get what we want from God. We need to be asking God what he wants from us. A very good friend of Christy and I in in Thailand uh, is named Dick. Her name is Dick. uh, And she's incredibly unwell. We, along with many others, have prayed with Dick and for Dick's healing on many, many occasions. But I remember one time when we were in Thailand... Dick was told that she lacks faith. She is a Christian, uh, but her friend said to her, why are you asking God to heal you? Why pray if it's your will? You should thank God that he will heal you. He's able, he's promised in his word to heal. So to prove your confidence in him, in his promises, well, give thanks in advance that God will completely heal you. But there's a massive problem in the logic being used there, isn't there? To pray like that presumes that we know what is best. We'll tell God what he should be doing. But who are we to tell God? That's not faith, it's arrogance in which we, like Israel, have put ourselves in God's place. It is right and proper to have confidence that God is able. He is. But faith will also acknowledge that we only have a limited understanding of things and that sometimes his better plan will take us in some very strange directions along paths that we don't enjoy being on. And even then, we will trust him. God's sovereignty clearly means that he's in control everywhere and at all times. It means that he cannot be manipulated. God's sovereignty also means that God is a solo saviour. If you've read on in your home groups or by yourselves into chapter 6, you'll know that chapter 5 has compressed the timing of what takes place to emphasise what causes these events. What lasts seven long months, according to chapter 6 verse 1, sounds in chapter 5 like it all happened within a week. And doing so emphasises the point. God does single-handedly what Israel's entire army was unable to do together. See, God doesn't need an enormous army to fight for him. He doesn't need great military strategists or superior weapons. He defeats the enemy unaided. And at this point we need to realize that the author is intentionally setting up what is going to happen on ha- happen later on in the book battles between nations taking over other nations land fortifying borders as the means of obtaining security will become the standard storyline of the remainder of 1 and 2 Samuel 1 and 2 Kings kings will count the number of their soldiers assuming that the bigger the number, the greater their capability to defeat the enemy. Nations will evaluate the extent of their weapons, the number of their chariots, the, the height of their walls. Security, it is assumed, is both observable and measurable. The more you have, the safer you are. And yet the lesson Israel needed to learn is that our security depends On Yahweh alone. It's not that Yahweh is a really good player, a a Don Bradman, who plays a greater part than the others in the team to overcome the opposition. No, God is so powerful that all by himself, he can demolish any opposition, even if both hands were tied behind his back. So far superior is Yahweh to all that there simply is no contest. God is capable of victory over all pretenders, all by himself. That is what it means for him to be sovereign. And yet again, how often do we fall into the same trap that Israel do? It was natural for them to be scared of a giant army or an army of giants. And it's still just as easy for us to feel overwhelmed by the things that we observe, Now, today, we may not seek security in the size of our army or the height of our wall. And yet, isn't it making the same mistake to rely on the size of our savings or the detail of our plans for the future? To think that the right career or job opportunity will ensure our future security. that having a a loving family, a certain life experience will ensure future security and happiness. So why are we trusting in the same things that our neighbours who don't trust in God are trusting in? The capture of the ark shows that if our security rests in what can be seen, in what we have or what we do, then we too are basing our security on very shaky ground. In the complexity of our often seemingly out-of-control situations, God wants us to realise that he is in control. And therefore, we can trust him. And again, we need to see that this is not just how God acted a a long time ago in a land far, far away. Rather, it prepares us for how Jesus rescues us now. Jesus doesn't depend on our contribution. He, He doesn't wait for us to do our bit. He defeats the enemy alone without any assistance from us. He gives us his righteousness if we accept him as our substitute. And so to think that we can make a contribution to our rescue by our goodness, by what we know or what we do, it's again a massive misunderstanding of the way that God saves. Right living is a response to what God has already done for us. God's way in the Old Testament and the New continues to be his only way. He rescues his people single-handedly. God's people need to accept his rescue that he's provided by putting unquestioning trust in him. Which leads into our final and implication, I think, of the first three. Because he's sovereign, because he cannot be manipulated and because he's a solo saviour, then God is truly a king worthy of our trust. While there's an implicit rebuke in this passage of underestimating God or misunderstanding him, there's also an incredible encouragement. How good to have a God like this fighting on our behalf. How amazing that we get to follow a God with unlimited control of all things at all times. In chapter 4, it appeared that Israel had been left leaderless Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, all dead. Worse, they'd also been left without God. And yet nothing could be further from the truth. Israel was not without a leader. Yahweh remained in complete control. He was still their king. In the past, as their king, he had rescued them, provided for them, instructed them how to live. And now God was still their king passing on his word to his people through a boy named Samuel. God wanted to save them. God was waiting to save them. If Israel would just humble themselves, listen to God's word and trust in their capable king instead of themselves, then as we see he does in chapter seven, he mercifully does save them yet again. God continued to reign. And he showed that his way of reigning is through his obedient servants. That's how he's always chosen to reign. From the time of Adam and Eve until the present, humanity is in God's image, designed to rule as managers under God's sovereign rule. God's sovereignty doesn't get rid of human leaders. Godly leadership will be defined by how well they listen to God when we found Christie's missing diamond there on the floor of the bathroom in dark, we were very, very relieved to get it back in its rightful place. Likewise, the Israelites in chapter six are also very glad to get the ark back in its rightful place. And yet I'm not convinced that they truly understood what God's rightful place is. Though God had demonstrated clearly his unquestionable capability to save, his undeniable desire to live in the midst of his people, they still did not treat God as he rightly deserves. God is in absolute control and we can only live correctly when we acknowledge this fact. And so as we hear the truth about God in an ancient book of events that happened thousands of years ago, I think the question that remains to be asked of us is, have we acknowledged God's rightful place, His sovereign control of all things? Do we only call on God to come to our rescue when we're out of our depth in big situations like a, a health crisis or a financial crisis or, or when we've tried everything else and, and nothing seems to have worked? We've run out of options. Is God our safety net, a backup plan to, to get us out of the trouble that we can't get ourselves out of? Or is Jesus our King, whom we follow with unquestioning trust and obedience in every situation, all the days of our lives? Will we trust him even when the circumstances scream out to us that it's a crazy thing to do? In light of his sovereignty, surely it's crazy not to trust him. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we do come before you thankful that you don't leave us in our mess. You've chosen to rescue us. You've presented to us in your word a clear message of what you're like and how you are a God worthy of our trust. Lord, I pray that you'd enable us to stop trying to save ourselves, stop trying to manipulate situations to get the best out of life for ourselves. And instead, we would trust in you as a king, that we would listen to your words and respond to them with obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.